0: Welcome to Shift Makers with your host, author and journalist, Marianne Schnall.
1: Welcome to the podcast. This is Marianne Schnall. And before we get to the conversation with President Jimmy Carter, I just want to give a little context and insight to the conversation that you are about to hear. I was personally so struck and inspired and moved by this conversation. And I think it's also to appreciate it in the context of the history of who this man is. You know, Since leaving the White House in 1981, President Carter, who was the 39th president of the United States, has been one of our most active and involved presidents. Whether it's been through his work with founding the Carter Center, which works to advance peace and health worldwide, or the fact that he has authored 28 books and also received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002 for his humanitarian work, he has been dedicated to creating change for his entire life and career. And to me, that makes it almost particularly remarkable that in his later years, and of course, he is now 95, he decided that of all of the issues that are obviously, you know, so pressing and of concern that he was going to dedicate himself to focus his attention on what he calls the most serious and unaddressed worldwide challenge of our time, which he believes is the discrimination and abuse of women and girls worldwide. When I spoke to him for this interview, it was around a book that he had written on this topic called A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. And this book was informed by his travels to over 145 countries and sort of witnessing firsthand with his own eyes, a system of discrimination in which he believes that women are deprived of all of their basic rights, deprived of education, healthcare, equal opportunity, and forced to suffer in servitude or experience child marriage or trapped in cycles of poverty, war and violence for themselves and their families, the infanticide of millions of newborn girls and selective abortion of female fetuses, female genital mutilation, the global pandemic of rape, including rape being used as a weapon of war and the worldwide trafficking and women and young girls. And all of these things are just just so unbelievably shocking and alarming that I know it sometimes can be hard to hear about. And yet he talks about it because we need to look at it in order to change it. And in his book and in his work with the Carter Center, he makes a point of uplifting 23 recommendations of ways that we can all work towards creating change. So at least he's very, you know, solution driven. And also, as I said, he wants us to feel hope that there is a way to eradicate some of these abuses we talk about these topics and also look at what he sees as the root causes so for example women being considered and treated as second class citizens in cultures you know throughout the world which also includes the incorrect interpretation of religious texts which often preach that men are superior to women in the eyes of god which is then often used to justify their subjugation and abuse and then just the general excessive resort to violence of all kinds which sort of permeates our culture He also, in addition to looking at, you know, some of these glaring examples uh, around the world, he also talks about some of the more timely issues that are impacting women and girls here in the U.S., such as the way sexual assault and rape are treated with relative impunity and without punishment in many cases on some of our most prestigious college campuses, as well as in the US military, and also how he sees this sort of social undercurrent of discrimination of women that results in women being sort of just very grossly underrepresented in leadership positions in politics and in many other sectors of society. We have a conversation, and I think he represents this about the need to have men involved in being part of the solution. The fact that these issues are often siloed as women's issues, when of course they affect us all, and this includes looking at the culture that is, you know, raising men to act in these ways, and certainly at the root causes of why all of our societies are so violent. The conversation was very powerful in addressing these issues, as well as for me, what I was particularly moved by in the moment that we're in right now, in which I just think we're all craving examples of moral leadership, is just the passion with which he talks about these issues, which represents truly you know, his dedication to being of service, which he has done throughout his entire life. And just representing such integrity and, you know, such dedication and commitment. And even at ni- at 95 and with all these examples, we're hearing the news about sort of, you know, his health bouts, he's still out there building homes for Habitat for Humanity and speaking out for peace and for addressing climate change and still out there talking about these abuses of women and girls worldwide. And for me, I just am so thankful that we have somebody that we can look to to remind us of what true leadership is. And to me, he embodies everything that we all want to see and need in terms of leaders in the world today. And now let's join my conversation with President Jimmy Carter.
0: So just to start off, what inspired you to write this book? Well,
2: it's covered in the book to some degree. We've had programs in 79 countries on Earth, and a lot of them have been in the third world, uh, in the most poverty-stricken countries and villages on Earth. And we've seen increasingly the abuse of girls and women in the local families, on the farms, and and, and depriving them of adequate food and health care and education when they only had one or two children, is, is all they can bear, and, and one of them was a boy. They wanted another boy. And we've seen the, the horrible murder of little girl babies at birth and, uh, and the abortion of girl fetuses because it was just female. And so uh, the quarter center started about three years ago to concentrate on the abuse of girls and women. And we've had three uh, interna- international meetings annually at the quarter center. Uh, the last one was in June, and we invite in women activists from Malaysia and around the world, and we also invite in, lately, religious leaders. The uh, grand imam of Ali Azhar was there, who has 120,000 students, uh, University in Cairo, and who's a Muslim leader, the Sunni Muslim leader on earth, and, and so forth. I won't go into part of the detail, but uh, for after three years, we've just seen how terrible a problem is, much more than I ever had dreamed. And so I decided to write a book and, and through a promotion schedule like I'm doing right now to try to bring this, uh, these uh, abuses of women and girls to the attention of, of the public.
0: What do you see as some of the most serious problems and issues that women around the world currently face?
2: Well, the most horrible is the one I just mentioned to you. You know, we, we lost maybe 40 million people in the Second World War, and we've lost four times that many in this generation to the murder of little girl babies by their parents. Either after they are born, they strangle them, or they kill them when they are fetuses now that they have the sonograms available in, in the poorest communities, and they can detect the sex of the baby before it's born. that's That's the most horrendous of all. The second one is international human trafficking or slavery, which far exceeds what it ever was in the 19th century out of Africa. And this occurs in our country as well. The State Department has to issue now an annual report, and they reported that 800,000 people were sold across international borders last year, and 80% of those were girls being sold into sexual slavery. Atlanta is uh, is a key key place in America for this slavery because we have the biggest airport on Earth, and most of our passengers, a lot of our passengers come from the Southern Hemisphere, where a girl can be bought cheaply. The average price for a girl out of Africa or Latin America is only about $1,000. Whereas if you get a girl out of Europe, for instance, she might cost as much as $8,000. So that means that we have a tremendous problem in this country of, uh, of trafficking or human slavery. And this is worldwide. And, and another thing that happens in America, of course, uh, is a, a gross abuse of girls on campuses of our great universities, including um, the most distinguished ones of all. And these are basically unpunished because the college administrators, the presidents and deans, don't want to bring discredit to their campus by having the girl take legal action that would uh, publicize rape. So what happens is that the boys who are inclined toward rape, when they get on a campus, they very quickly realize they can do it with impunity. So about half of the total rapes on campuses now are done by serial rapists, but they never are punished. And you've read You've seen a lot of stories recently in the news about uh, the military. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, A couple
2: of years ago, 2012, there were 26,000 cases of sexual abuse in in the military units, and only about 300 and something of those resulted in any punishment, which is about 1%. So these are the kind of things that go on not only in the rich world, like ours, but also uh, multiply greatly when you get to a country that might resort to honor killing of girls, because when they are raped, it's a disgrace to the family, or to other matters of that kind.
0: Now, wh- what do you see as, you know, the roots of this problem? I mean, because it's really, you know, it's almost in disbelief to hear the extent, but where do you think the root is in terms of starting to well, address there, this?
2: There are two generic foundations for it that I describe in the book. One is religion. You know, if a husband is inclined to abuse his wife or if, uh, an employer saying General Motors is inclined to pay his female employees less than a man, at least indirectly or subtly, they derive their conviction that it's not really a a bad thing by the fact that a woman is treated as an inferior person in the great religions. For instance, the Catholic Church doesn't permit a woman to be a priest or a deacon. And in the Southern Baptist Convention, where I was loyal for 70 years, a woman is deprived of those two opportunities. She can't be a a uh, chaplain in the military and in the seminaries that is the higher education systems and Southern Baptist Convention a woman can't teach a classroom if a boy student is in the class so when you know, men in secular life who might be religious or not see women being treated as secondary in the eyes of God they assume that it's okay for them to do it. And the other thing is the excessive commitment to violence in this country. We have uh, been involved in more wars on a bilateral basis since the United Nations was formed than, than any other country by far, about 30 different times. I, I name a few of them in my book. And we also have the only policy in, the, in North America or NATO in, in, in the advanced world of executing people for crimes. We still have the death penalty in this country and nowhere else that we know of in the the rich world and we have about seven and a half times as many prisoners in jail right now in America as we had when I was a governor and we have about 3,200 people in prison in the United States now for life who have never committed a crime of violence. So the excessive resort to, to violence of all kinds plus Misinterpretation of biblical scriptures are two of the generic causes.
0: And how, what do you where do you see the entry points for creating change? Well, I think first of all, I'm not being
2: too subjective about this. I think is is my writing this book and going out as a former president to talk about it because a lot of people are startled, actually, you know, when I give them the facts that are proven you know, by origins in the book, sources of the information, including the U.S. State Department. I also wrote the Pope a letter and, and told Pope Francis that, that I had met previously with his, with his predecessor, with uh, Pope John Paul II, about these issues. I found him to be very conservative on the issue, but I got a letter from Pope uh, Francis, Francis that said that he thought there were a lot of things that are in my book with which he would help like slavery and prostitution and things of that kind. I, I didn't ask him to, to permit women to be priests in the Catholic Church. That's too big a step to take at once. But he did respond to my letter by saying that in his opinion. Uh, in the future, women needed to play a much greater role in the Catholic Church itself, which was very encouraging to me. Mm-hmm. And last week, as you may have noticed, he appointed an eight-person committee to deal with the abuse of children by priests. And, and four of those eight were women, which was quite startling. And uh, one of them was a woman who had been abused by a priest when she was a child in a, in a convent. So the r- religious leaders and the uh, political leaders, and, and one thing I advocate in the book, I've got 23 recommendations at the end of the book to, to deal with all the issues that I've talked to you about and have some that are still in the book. Uh, one of those is to, is to take away from commanding officers in the military any right to obstruct the, the persecution, a prosecution, of a, a alleged rapist. Uh, now the commanding officers can block that, as you know. And uh, the senator from New York tried to change that unsuccessfully. Although, although she did get 55 votes in the Senate, she didn't get the 60 required. But, you know, if, if uh, our top political leaders, if the president and others, would just join in with her which they didn't do, I think we could maybe do that, and we could do away with, uh, with we could certainly reduce the level of human trafficking or, or the trading in slavery that exists on a global basis.
0: And my, I, I have a book out, uh, What Will Take to Make a Woman President, Conversations About Women, Leadership, and Power, which was actually sparked by my eight-year-old daughter just noticing, why haven't there been a woman's president? I mean, certainly as you're talking about the people in positions of leadership, obviously the numbers of women are so low. Why do you think there are so few women in leadership positions, and what do you think we can do to change that inequity?
2: Well, there, the United States is, is exceptionally culpable. I think we rank about 60th in the world in the percentage of women who occupy political offices at all levels, at the local, state, and national level. And on the overall ranking of women compared to men, according to the World Economic Forum, they've done this for seven years. The United States ranks 23rd in the world, and so mm-hmm. 22 other countries have a better record on giving women equal rights than than do uh, than men. Mm-hmm. So. You know, this this is one of the things that we do. When I when I was became president, there were only three percent of the members of Congress who are women. They've, that's now been increased to about eighteen percent, but we still rank below the world average of about twenty three percent.
0: And why is this? A lot of times, you know, first of all, it gets framed as a women's issue. But why is this important? Why should people care about this issue? And how do you see this as interconnected with other issues that the world faces? The status of women.
2: Well, there's no other. Uh, even uh, moderately equal uh, abuse than the murder of little baby girls, which I've already described. Nothing else compares with that in horror. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else like that. But, but there's a pretty good correlation between the overall economic well-being of a country and how they treat their women with the right to education, for instance, or the right to jobs. We do better well with that in the United States. About 57% of our graduates at the bachelor's level and at the Ph.D. level are women now. The students are, not the graduates, but the students in college right now. That's the latest uh, statistics. And, and, but women still get 23% of the pay of an average man. And if you look at the Fortune 500 companies, only about two dozen of them have women CEOs. Mm-hmm. And at that high level, women get 42% less pay than a man. So, you know, we, we still have a, have a long way to go to correct it. And I think the only way to be corrected in any realm of abuse is for it to be highly publicized mm-hmm. by me and by you and by others uh, who are aware of the problem.
0: So the other part that I, I mean, I remember interviewing Patrick Stewart, who was part of this effort to enlist men in the, the effort to stop violence agreement against women. Do you think that sometimes the efforts miss the opportunity to, to realize that not only do we need to help the survivors of violence, but we also need to address the culture and factors that cause men and boys to commit these acts in the first place?
2: Yeah, well, one of the things that I, that I have to have as a cautionary factor in my book which we've learned from experience for the last 35 years, is if if we Westerners, no matter how well we are received, go into a a remote village in uh, in Africa and so forth, and we begin to preach to them that you need to stop circumcising your girls, you need to stop uh, letting your little girls who are 10 years old be married, and so forth, it's counterproductive they have an adverse reaction to it. And that's why we've been so careful in this book and at the Carter Center to utilize women who come from those regions and who are Muslims, in fact, one of the most notable is from Malaysia, and to let them make their own recommendations. So in a number of countries, like in Liberia right this moment, I I cover this in my book a little bit, uh, we go into the interior of Liberia and we get the women leaders to originate these these, uh, changes themselves. And we stay out of it. You know, we, we don't want white folks to go in there and, and tell them how to run their business. But when we do try to, when others try to do this, and we've learned not to do it, it's really, uh, it, it just convinces them we don't want to have anybody interfere. The circumcision of girls or the mutilation of their gen- genitalia is not ordained in the Quran, it's not promoted by any imam or even husband. This is a, a, a crime against girls that are perpetrated by their own mothers alone who were circumcised when they were children, they, they think it's a proper thing to do uh, to their little girls. And they are taught that this will decrease their daughter's enjoyment of the sex act and therefore keep them more chaste and, and unlikely to be impregnated when they become young, unmarried girls. And this is, is, is extended now into horrendous circumstances whereby in Egypt at this moment, with 90% of all the women who live in Egypt now, have been circumcised or have their uh, genitalia, mutilated. And and they go to extremes. I, I have We have had cutters, the women who perform these operations, come to the Carter Center and testify, and some of them have given up their trade to try to end the practice. But they also, uh, after they cut the little girl uh, and remove the outer parts of her uh, genitalia and so forth, they sew the orifice up so she can only urinate. And then later, when she's a teenager, she can menstruate. And then when she gets married, they go back in with the same razor blade, same kind of razor blade, and they cut the orifice open so she can have sex with her husband and bear children. So this is this goes on worldwide in some areas. And the the United Nations General Assembly have passed two official resolutions condemning it. And some countries pass laws against it. But there are countries in Africa now where 97% of the women of all ages, women and girls, are, are mutilated.
0: Now, when you hear some of these things, I mean, the problem sounds so daunting. Do you feel optimistic? And I, I guess how, in, in terms of, you know, that people, we can make this shift and, and make, I mean, sometimes I feel like people shut down when they hear some of this. Well, I, I think that's probably true.
2: And, you know, I've just been on the radio programs and TV programs. I'm at now in Chicago. I've been in Washington. I've been in New York.
0: And, and I don't have
2: any doubt that people shut down and, and don't want to listen to it. And I think college presidents don't want to hear that girls are being abused on their own campuses I'm sure they know it but instead of dealing with the problem in a corrective way they call in the girls or have their deans do it and they say why don't we uh, give the boy counseling if you know who it was and she say, yeah I know he's a classmate of mine and they don't want the to be a legal uh, issue And you just you may have seen or you can look up on your internet, the abuse of a of midshipman at the Naval Academy just recently where three football players raped this uh, female midshipman. And she went through horrendous cross-examination in public last August. She was put under 21 hours cross-examination by the defenders out the football players. And she was asked, what kind of uh, underwear did you wear? Uh, how many times have you ever kissed a boy in an automobile? Have you had sex before? How wide do you open your mouth when you give oral sex? She was asked those questions in public, and so, and then they were all found innocent, by the way. And so that sends a signal throughout the U.S. military, it's just a mistake for a girl to report it because her parents will find out and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's, and so this is something that could be corrected. And I think the president and, and the Washington Post and Huffington Post and, and New York Times and so forth, I hope that they will not follow my lead, but just take it on their own.
0: And wh- how can people contribute to this issue? I mean, what motivation and encouragement and advice would you offer in terms of people just helping create well, change?
2: If you read the, this, the final chapter in my book, there are 23 specific things that, that I recommend that the that a reader of the book can do. I just mentioned a, a couple of them. Mm-hmm. You know, we can support the State Department in its promulgation every year of the incidences of uh, sexual slavery around the world. Uh, we can encourage uh, churches to treat women as equal in the eyes of God. We can get women activists to speak out. We can get uh, college presidents either to take action against uh, rapists on their campus or either encourage the, uh, the U.S. Department of Education to enforce Title IX, which is now being focused on this particular thing, in other words, as a threat. Under Title IX, it used to be just designed for sports. That if the university doesn't correct abuse of girls, they can, they can with, uh, that the United States government can withhold grants, even for research, if they don't take action to s- protect girls. And things of this kind, but there's a whole gamut of them that can be pursued.
0: Okay. And very last question, why are you so personally passionate about this issue?
2: Because I think it's perhaps the most important single issue that I've ever addressed, since, certainly since I left the White House. Uh, Keeping my country at peace and promoting human rights around the world was important when I was president. But nothing has ever affected me more or convinced me more that the abuse is horrendous and that very few people are doing anything about it and that maybe my voice can convince people to join with us, join with the Carter Center, join with each other, and let's correct some of these most horrendous abuses.
1: As we reflect on the conversation that we just heard with President Carter, I guess I just want to underscore, you know, often we talk about, you know, I have a whole book on why we haven't had a woman president. And we can have some of these very lofty intellectual conversations about why we don't have more women in leadership. But what we're really talking about and is evidenced in this conversation that we've just listened to is we need to really look at the root system of the fact that these horrible atrocities that are still occurring and the, the rape and, and murder of women and girls really speak to the pervasiveness of just the basic, you know, status and rights of women and girls. Their their very safety and lives that are at stake that we need to look at and address before we can really get to a point where we have the type of equality that we often talk about in, in sort of our more conventional conversations. As painful as it is to imagine that these types of human rights abuses are occurring, I think they are a symptom and evidence of the cancer that is causing uh, so many different levels of the inequality that we see in the, here in the U.S. and in the world. And until we sort of, you know, address and try to cure the cancer, we are never going to create the type of change that we really need to see. The other thing that really stands out to me about President Carter is that he is a man of faith and divinity, and that is ultimately what charges him in, in his work and in his activism. I feel like that is part of the shift that we also need to manifest in that sort of sense For women of our own worth, our own inner power of recognizing the things that we deserve in terms of our rights and our dignity and our safety and being able to own our power in ways that we live a life that is in alignment with who we are and with our purpose and also to be able to use our power to heal ourselves and to heal our global sisters and to be a transformative force for change to represent all of humanity. So that is ultimately, I think, one of the most inspiring things that I came away with from this interview was that sense of there is an inner transformation for women, but for all of us that also will inform the change that we need to see on this issue and on so many issues that impact our world. You've been listening to Shift Makers, For more information about this podcast or our
0: host, check out marionshnal.com.